Welcome to Humanities Now, the official podcast of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. We're very excited to have you with us for this inaugural episode. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Borshek, Associate Professor in the Department of English and Director of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. Humanities Now features monthly conversations with members of the humanities community here at TTU. With every episode, these varied voices help us realize the Center's mission, asking out loud, what does it mean to be human, and demonstrating how we can answer that question from so many different perspectives. Every year, the Humanities Center at Texas Tech sponsors a scholarly theme that provides focus for our various academic and outreach activities. Last year, our theme was justice. Over the summer, after the COVID-19 pandemic forced the cancellation of our final few spring events, our emphasis on justice proved as relevant as ever. The pandemic further exposed profound injustices in American life, calling specific attention to unequal access to medical resources, as seen through vastly disproportionate mortality rates across race and class. Moreover, the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and George Floyd have again laid bare the grim certainties of systemic racism and white supremacy in this country. While protesters took to the streets throughout the summer to speak back to the ongoing injustice of black lives in peril, we remembered all the more how vital the humanities are for historicizing inequality, thinking critically, and articulating means for redress. Our justice theme has ended, but the conversations we showcased all last year are still necessary and ongoing. With the start of the fall semester, the Humanities Center introduces a new theme for 2020-2021, forests. On today's show, we'll preview forests and hear from the various faculty who will be programming events and activities. As a literature scholar, I've long been enamored by forests and storytelling. Forests can be foreboding places or sites of magical activity. They're the woods to be traversed with a wolf in hiding, the topsy-turvy timberland where sprites run wild and rules get reversed. In a 2017 piece for the online magazine Electric Literature, journalist Carrie V. Mullins revisits a wide array of literary forests. Mullins reminds us that the woods are where Dante begins his descent into hell. The forest is where Setha gives birth. It's the forbidden geography for Harry Potter and his Hogwarts classmates. But what if we move the forest from the background to the foreground? What if we make the forest the main character in our story? That's exactly what the Humanities Center's theme aims to do this year. How might looking at forests from various humanities perspectives help us see these spaces beyond the backdrops they provide or the material resources they yield? An ancient religious text like the Bhagavata Purana, for instance, reminds us how forests might prove morally instructive. As Lord Krishna tells us, have a look at these great blessed trees who live only for the welfare of others themselves facing the severity of stormy winds, heavy showers, heat and snow, all while protecting us from them. While the Humanities Center encourages innovative research and provocative conversations about what it means to be human, we mustn't forget that forests are alive as well. As we'll hear in various ways from our various guests on the podcast today, that is one of the key ideas animating this year's theme. To begin, let's hear from Bruce Clark of the Department of English. Dr. Clark heads up our forest programming team this year, and he'll give you an overview of what we have planned. Hello, I'm Dr. Bruce Clark, 
Paul Whitfield Horn, Distinguished Professor of Literature and Science in the Department of English. I want to tell you about the upcoming theme of the Texas Tech University Humanities Center on forests. You may be wondering how this theme came about, especially here on the South Plains, far from the great forests elsewhere in the country. Well, it has to do with the realization that no matter where you live, the flourishing of the forests is crucial for the health of the planet, and thus for the health and happiness of human beings as well. Another consideration for us has been the upsurge of interest in the kinds of awareness of the natural world long associated with the animistic beliefs of indigenous peoples and so dismissed as imaginary. We see this depicted, for instance, in the lifeways of the forest-dwelling Ometakaya in the movie Avatar. At the same time, recent works of academic and popular science have made claims for the capacities of plants to feel, respond, and communicate. What's going on here? For one example, German forester Peter Volleben's recent memoir, The Hidden Life of Trees, What They Feel, How They Communicate, draws on the new forestry associated with the Canadian ecologist Dr. Suzanne Simmert to describe how in forests, mother trees live together with their children, communicate with them through fungal networks entwined with their roots, support their progeny as they grow, share nutrients with other members of their community, and even warn each other of impending dangers. Folleben and Simard's manner of attributing feeling and intentionality to plants has garnered some notoriety in the scientific academy. However, the science behind their statements is compelling. We consider it the task of the humanities in this moment to deliberate seriously upon this narrowing of the traditional sense of separation between human beings and the rest of the biosphere. In the case of contemporary literature, Richard Powers' Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Overstory, published in 2018, follows a series of characters who act on the conviction that trees are reaching out to them, pleading with them, the most wondrous products of four billion years of life need help. Are these fictional expressions also only metaphors? merely flights of literary fantasy? Or is this novel presenting a fictional reflection of a new mode of possible understanding in the process of taking shape? For instance, we've come to appreciate how, in the long run, our own health and longevity depend upon maintaining robust interrelations among organisms and ecosystems, all the salutary diversity of symbiotic relationships. These new findings have extended our awareness of the interconnectedness of humans with planetary systems that our own ways of life have imperiled. What seems to be indisputable at the current moment is that what it means to be human can no longer be set entirely apart from what it means to be only a part of a larger living world. The forest program of the TTU Humanities Center will be employing virtual modes of delivery until further notice in order to serve the campus and the community here and at a distance with a series of opportunities for wide-ranging presentations and discussions.
in this moment of COVID-19 and a global pandemic quite likely to have come about due to human encroachment on no longer isolated forests, it's crucial to address issues such as these from all sides. After all, Human beings are increasingly holding other lives in the balance of our own perceptions and decisions. Insofar as our future prospects will increasingly depend on the well-being of the non-human world, our own ideas must be as well-informed as possible. Thank you, Bruce. Dr. Clark cautions us to remember how vital forests can be to our own human self-conception. His colleague, Sarah Spurgeon, agrees. As she tells us next, we might especially benefit from respecting indigenous cultural understandings of the forest. I'm Sarah Spurgeon, professor of literatures of the American Southwest at Texas Tech University, and I'd like to talk to you about forests. Of course, forests live in human cultures in all kinds of ways, They're in our folk tales and our mythologies, our poetry and fairy stories, our art, our dreams, even our nightmares. Scientists study forests as environmentally important places that hold 80% of the world's biodiversity. Researchers working on global warming remind us that trees are the planet's lungs, absorbing carbon dioxide, the dominant greenhouse gas warming the earth, and exhaling oxygen. Wood harvested from forests provides the lumber for our homes and the wood pulp for our paper. And of course, in many parts of the world, wood is the primary means by which people heat their homes and cook their food. But a forest is not the same as a tree farm. A single forest might have a hundred different species of trees and thousands of other types of plants, animals, insects, birds, fungi, and bacteria. Scientists have now confirmed what indigenous communities have long known. The complex webs of life in a forest are not just alive, they communicate. Yes, the trees talk to each other. And they talk to other forms of life as well, setting up complex systems of barter and exchange, providing shelter, shade, and nutrients in various forms, swapped for aid in defending against attacks by insects, or assistance in getting water to their root systems in times of drought. But as indigenous cultures around the world also point out, Like the birds and the bees, humans have been a part of forest ecosystems since our earliest ancestors literally came down from the trees. Aboriginal peoples used controlled burns to prevent the buildup of flammable brush in Australian forests for millennia, and native peoples in the Americas have been managing forests for at least 8,000 years before the European invasion disrupted their beautifully balanced system. U.S. Forest Service fire suppression policies in the West have so disturbed Native American burning regimes, the effects are visible in tree ring data. While many people assume climate change is the major driver of today's megafires, Several studies now demonstrate how Euro-American colonization 
has directly caused the largest, most destructive shift in forest fire behavior in California in the past 400 years. In other words, the genocide of indigenous peoples directly relates to today's catastrophic wildfires occurring around the globe, from the Amazon to the American Southwest to the Australian outback, where the fires of January 2020 pushed thousands of endangered species to the edge of extinction and resulted in the death of an estimated 3 billion animals, including nearly a third of all koalas in Australia. The destruction of forests can result in more than just the disappearance of cuddly Aussie animals, however. Many scientists say reversing deforestation, a root cause of climate change, would not only help slow down biodiversity loss, it would also slow animal migrations that increase the risk of the spread of infectious diseases. According to the Harvard School of Public Health, the Ebola epidemic in West Africa probably occurred in part because bats, which carried the disease, have been forced to move into new habitats, closer to human settlements, because the forests they used to live in had been cut down to grow palm oil trees. We don't yet know exactly what triggered the COVID-19 outbreak, but researchers suspect that, like Ebola, the coronavirus passed from bats to humans through some other as yet unknown animal species. The health of forests, in other words, affects the health of humans. So how do we come back from all this? How do we rediscover the relationship with forests that we've lost? How do we move forests from our poetry and dreams back into a place where we respect and nurture forests, where we understand that doing so is a way of respecting and nurturing human communities as well. This year's program, sponsored by Texas Tech's Humanities Center, offers a wide range of voices and perspectives from across disciplines and around the world, all focused on exploring, celebrating, and reconnecting with forests. From climate scientists and poets, artists and anthropologists, indigenous food activists teaching us how to cook native cuisines with local forest foraged ingredients, to environmentalists, literary scholars, and biologists. We hope you can join us. As Sarah mentioned, our focus on forests this year is varied and extends across several academic disciplines. Next, Curtis Bauer speaks from his perspective as a poet and translator. As Curtis tells us, there's no shortage of reading to offer us a range of entry points into the forest. Hello, I'm Curtis Bauer, Professor of Poetry and Comparative Literature in the Department of English, and I'd like to talk to you about forests, the theme of the 2020 Texas Tech University Humanities Center. 
In addition to my role as a faculty member, I'm a poet and translator, and a necessity in this work is to be observant, to be out in the world and looking, not only with my eyes, but with my other senses. I listen to how people speak, what languages they use. I taste the grit in the air, smell the evidence of cattle miles to the north and west lingering on that air, sometimes filled with the sound of pump jacks or constant wind moving through the trees. And I touch objects like goat heads or sticky grasses or trees lining a path running through a canyon. Some of the books and authors I'm finding useful as I help prepare for Humanities Center activities planned for this fall, activities such as virtual walks and exhibits, discussions by geoscientists and biologists, and our forest conference scheduled for the spring, are books that encourage and demonstrate deep observation, being present in the natural world, and looking for relationships, whether geographic, literary, social, linguistic, or ecological, between the local and global. For example, Rebecca Solnit's book, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, which draws on emblematic moments and relationships in her own life to explore issues of wandering, being lost, and the uses of the unknown in her exploration of the urban and natural worlds. As well, Maria Sanchez's Land of Women, an intimate and familiar view of the rural environment. I'm translating this book from the Spanish. It's written by a woman veterinarian in Spain concerned that rural communities and the stories they hold are disappearing, that those stories have traditionally been told by urban narrators, those unfamiliar with the nuances and intricacies of the rural environment, and those stories have left out the role of women in these communities as protagonists and narrators. This book, though it is about communities in Spain, addresses concerns we can also find in similar communities across the U.S. and in Texas in particular. Who is telling the stories of our communities here, of our families, of those inhabitants who don't necessarily fit under the typical idea of the West Texan? One of the goals of our Humanities Center events and conference is to bring people together from across academic disciplines and our diverse university and West Texas community to share ideas and observations about forests so we can expand our understanding of this theme and include a local perspective. I grew up in the Midwest around timbers filled with elms, dogwoods, walnuts, and oaks, not to mention different grasses, animals, insects, and birds living in and around the undergrowth. Another book I would suggest reading in consideration of our theme is The Overstory by Richard Powers which begins with a chapter about one of the few remaining chestnut trees in Iowa, in the nation, in fact, and the generations of a family that grows and dies around it. This book offers a new perspective about the ecology of a place I inhabited and always thought I knew well. I've also lived in the Basque Country in northern Spain, where the California pine was introduced early in the 19th century for the logging industry, pushing out mountainsides of old-growth forests of beech, ayas in Spanish, and oak, robles. Clusters of these trees still stand, fortunately, holding inside them the mythical and political weight of the region's rich history. In fact, beginning in the Middle Ages, the oak tree became the symbol of the Basque government, and in the town of Guernica, an oak tree still stands. It's the fifth tree in a dynasty that began with the father tree planted in the 14th century and lived for 450 years. What trees are considered grand and symbolic in Texas? What tree represents the essence of the West Texas forest? In 1919, the pecan tree was named our state tree. 
Cottonwood trees in our nearby canyons have long been signs that water is near, not only for the indigenous nations of the plains and desert, but also for peoples crossing the state's southern border. According to the Lubbock Scapes Collective, the pump jack is a metaphoric tree connecting the surface to the million years old forests that are now crude oil. Perhaps these iron structures are the representative tree in the forests of West Texas and will endure for future generations. For Christopher Merrill, a cultural diplomat, translator, and poet, it's the dogwood tree. In his book, Self-Portrait with Dogwood, he not only discusses why the dogwood is his favorite tree, but explores the global symbolic relevance of the tree he grew up with in New Jersey. For the poet, essayist, and scholar Ross Gay, it might be the fig tree, which he praises in his two recent books, The Book of Delights and Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. Gay, an African-American man, also explores a dangerous side of forests, where the violence of lynching has been committed against the black body. I'm thrilled that we have this opportunity to revise and expand how we see and understand forests, to learn to see relationships and similarities between the unique bio-network of the South Plains as compared to the forests around the world. We will do so by considering our diverse engagements with forests through different scholarly perspectives, including the natural sciences, linguistics, archaeology, architecture, literature, history, and art, to name only a few. We hope you will join this conversation this fall and next spring. Curtis provides an array of literary evocations, but we might also think about what forests teach us about time. There's a broad temporal divide, remember, between the life of forests and the life of individual humans. As archaeologist Christopher Whitmore tells us, our attention to the forests in this year's theme would be incomplete if we didn't keep this in mind. Hello, my name is Christopher Whitmore, and I am Professor of Archaeology and Classics in the Department of Classical and Modern Languages and Literatures. As an archaeologist, I am, of course, concerned with the study of past societies. And yet, at the same time, I've long been fascinated with what has become of the past itself. How through derelict terraces, stone enclosures, or gnarled olive boughs, pasts are coextensive with those of us living here and now. So where others often look for the material remains of, say, Egyptian farmers or Greek herders, I am prompted to question how these remains might hold contrast to how we have come to live with our lands today, and how vestiges of past peoples might serve as lessons, both good and bad, for how we might live with our world now and in the future. Just as one may focus on what memories held in the folds and creases of the countryside suggest with regard to the making of landscapes, so too might one rummage among the understories of forests for indications of past land use, woodland management, and environmental change. Part of the diversity of human experience has been to live with woodlands, and whether they are seen as primordial or even sentient, as resources or achievements shaped at the confluence of humans, animals, trees, fungi, and climate. Forests have played central roles in sustaining life as we know it on our planet. For me, forests, the Humanity Center's theme for the 2020-2021 academic year, provides an opportunity to engage woodlands in the lands where I work as an archaeologist. For example, 
Over the last five years, I have undertaken research on the Aegean island of Samothrace, targeting matters of land use, agrarianism, and comparative ecology, from just before its earliest human inhabitation to present. Since the beginnings of talkative history, Samothrace has been known for its ancient and magical forests. When he spoke of Poseidon watching the Trojans battle the Achaeans in Book 13 of the Iliad, the Greek poet Homer described the island as Ilesis, wooded. In hiking beneath canopies of plain, chestnut, and oak, I have looked for indications of past foresters and their practices, whether encompassing poles for fences, lopping branches for olive fodder, or felling trees to make charcoal. In this research, I have found inspiration in the work of Oliver Rackham, who wrote about the woodland history of Europe, Roger Deacon, who wrote about the experience of wandering in sylvan settings, or Richard Nielsen, who wrote about the sentient woods of the Koyukon, indigenous forest dwellers of central Alaska. In October, I will curate a digital exhibition on Pisgah National Forest in North Carolina, where I am working on a community-driven archaeological project which aims to generate stories about past peoples, indigenous communities, settlers, loggers, farmers, and their relations with the forest, which will be written, even whispered, along actual hiking trails under the dense canopies of Appalachia. Thank you, Christopher. And there you have it, a brief glimpse into some of the context to which we'll be attentive and the conversations we'll pursue over this year's theme. I encourage you to bookmark our website, humanitycenter.ttu.edu, and follow us, Humanity Center at Texas Tech, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to stay abreast of all of the events we have planned under the Forest banner. Finally today, we'd like to close this first show by introducing the latest member of our Humanity Center community at Texas Tech, our new postdoctoral fellow, Dr. Katie Magagna. Katie will be teaching and researching on our campus throughout the 2020-2021 year, and we're proud to welcome her to Texas Tech. I'm going to let Katie tell you a little about the work that she does. Hi, my name is Katie Magani, and I'm pleased to be the postdoctoral fellow in the Humanities Center for the 2020-2021 academic year. I think the projects, programs, and or centers which highlight humanities research are important in a number of ways. I'll leave out the details to protect the guilty, but a friend of mine once told me about going to a university-sponsored research recognition thing and having the person over graduate-level research for the university ask her, How do you even do research in English? We all understand that research in biology may lead to a new treatment for cancer, but too often people don't understand how humanities research matters. For a little bit of background, I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, attending public schools and stayed in Louisiana for college due to a scholarship program for in-state students. I ended up earning a BGS, BA, and MA in English with a concentration in literature from Northwestern State University in Natchitoches. I can trace my moves from then back to those years of a ridiculous number of hours a week in the English department, generally with no idea where I'd left my shoes. The program was big enough that all of the students didn't have to take the exact same courses, and small enough that we all knew each other, students and faculty, both research interests and enough general information to ask about the kids by name or about a recent trip. And that's how I ended up on a plane to Wellington, New Zealand to start my PhD at Victoria University of Wellington. 
Krogan, who teaches communication at NSU, had emailed me a link to Vic's English staff with a message to the effect of, haven't you been to Africa or Romania or maybe India recently? This is less exotic, but I think there's a good match for a supervisor for you. I'm not telling you which one. He was right, and there was. Several months later, I landed in Wellington on a cool late summer day in February to claim my scholarship and start my degree. Here at Texas Tech, I'll be building on the research that I began in Wellington. My thesis focuses on late 19th century popular novels, specifically the representations of science and the supernatural in fiction. Science has changed dramatically since the 19th century. Many deeply held scientific ideas of the 1800s seem so bizarre to us now that we assume that they are fantastic, magical, entirely made up. Yet scientists' creative thinking was much greater than we readily assume. Respected scientists claim to have experiment-based proof of the supernatural. In turn, authors' imaginations were not as great as we sometimes give them credit for. Late 19th century authors used popularized forms of these strange scientific ideas as the basis for some of their seemingly fantastic fiction. I'll be using the Kroger History of Science collection to explore 19th century medicine in juxtaposition with the depictions of curses in the 19th century popular British novel. I plan to examine the fictional representation of illness caused by curses. My research here combines the history of science and literature broadly conceived. Novels serve as a basis for the understanding of what the average person may have engaged with. While I've read medical texts on the immense dangers of real mesmerism, for example, the average 19th century reader would not have hunted down what may have seemed a boring scientific text. Yet when we understand that mesmerism was real and the things that doctors believed of it, then the oriental mesmerist, a common villainous character in fin de siècle fiction, gains depth. Sure, there's some overt racism in the fact he's Eastern, but there's also a fear of progress represented in that trope. My interest in popular lit is itself worth a moment of attention. The novels I'm researching aren't high literature with a capital L and a bit of an uppity accent. As a matter of fact, pop lit scholars tend to leave off the second half of that word altogether most of the time. In the novels I study, popularity and the number of pages printed and sold mattered much more than art. Almost the opposite of art for art's sake, these authors were writing to keep a roof overhead. Haste is frequently evident, but so too is research. I find that often the themes and the details are extremely well-researched, especially in texts where the language is wonderfully awkward. In Richard Marsh's The Beetle, he can be inexact, awkward, and clunky, yet the character of the beetle is precise in its lack of precision. What he created may not be a literary masterpiece, but it contains a character of horror that captured the attention of the late Victorian reader. The Beetle outsold Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1897 when they were both published. Admittedly, Poplet is still fighting for its place in many instances, but I distinctly remember the day over a decade ago when Professor walked up to a group of students chatting about conference abstracts and declared that there's no such thing as something not worth academic attention. He challenged us to write about what we love and to read what we enjoy, or to change what we read. That scene has replayed in my head over the years. When I walked into other people's offices and thought about how dry their reading must be, and when they later walked into mine and exclaimed how much fun mine must be, ghosts and magic, curses, mesmerism, and other spooky stuff, focusing on poplet that I find engaging frequently makes it much more interesting to others as well. Sure, I'll write a paper for the Louisiana Studies Conference. Why not? From there, I started with a Google search for vampires and Louisiana to gather some ideas. 
a paper defining what makes a Louisianian vampire, and another about the economics of blood in Charlene Harris's Suki Stackhouse novels later, I have a much better idea of the fallout of Stoker's vampire. And some questions about how we, as a society, pick which gothic monsters we cling to. Thank you, Katie. And that brings us to the end of the first episode of Humanities Now. Please make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find podcasts. We look forward to having you with us again in October. Thank you to our Humanities Center staff, Justin Hughes, Tara Okopi, and Callie Watson, and to Tyler Simpson for our original theme music. I'm Dr. Michael Borshuk, and I'll see you next month.